John chapter 5, and just reading a couple of verses this evening, verses 16 and 17. John writes, If a man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. These are interesting verses um, that we read this evening, and tonight we will begin by in, within these two verses, our study into the fourth of the six divisions of this fifth and final chapter of 1 John. This portion of the text seems to take quite a shift from the thought of the previous division, consisting of verses 13 through 15. However, when we examine this portion of the text in light of the previous two verses, verses 14 and 15, we find that there is a connection which exists. And this connection centers on prayer. Look again at verses 14 through 16 now together. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of Him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. As John has explained, when we pray according to the will of God, not only does God hear but He also grants our request. That's what we've seen in verse 14 and verse 15 of this text. However, we are also commanded within this passage, as we've seen in verse 16 and 17, to not pray for those who commit sin unto death. So the question which then this brings forth, or which arises from this statement, would simply be, are we to pray or not to pray? Because he says we are to pray, and then he says, however, don't pray concerning this matter. And this instruction concerning prayer within the context in which John uses it in this portion of this epistle answers the previous question, are we to pray or not to pray? Again, verse 16. If any man say, see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for that, for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. So the first thing we are to recognize is that this instruction to pray is within the context of praying for others. And this is of, of great importance. Here we're being told in verses 14 and 15 that we are to ask according to His will, and He hears us, and then we know if He hears us that He answers our request. Now, many times, if we're not careful, we will turn that totally upon ourselves in terms of what we desire, and, and we will look at what we want to be, or how we want God to work in our lives. Now, we should be praying concerning ourselves and that God, God give us grace to remain faithful and true and, and trusting in Christ and resting in Him. And we all, of course, are in need of that consistent reminder and, and of the strength of the Spirit of God who dwells within us that we might be aware of His presence and His power dwelling within us. And so, yes, we should pray for ourselves, even in the sense of physical needs. We just mentioned prayer requests a moment ago and those who are in need. And, and sometimes it's for ourselves. There are things that happen in our own lives. And we, there's nothing wrong with us making known our petitions and, and bearing each other's burdens in the sense of even those things which grieve us or burden us. And, and so we should make these things known. But much too often, I'm afraid, we, we subjectivize scriptures concerning prayer and really turn the attention or focus on us or on our felt needs or, or our understood needs. Again, not that it's wrong to make these things known and humble ourselves before God, in, in making these requests. But notice here in this text, the first thing we should recognize is that this is concerning praying for others. This is prayer for others, not even for ourselves in this context. So even as we read the previous verse, it is apparent 
that the previous verse sets the context for these verses which follow, verses 16 and 17. In other words, praying for others, as mentioned in verse 16, must be read within the context of the petitions and prayers which are aforementioned in verses 14 and 15. So when he talks about praying for those who have not sinned unto death and then not praying for those who have committed sin unto death, and all that must be read within the previous context of we know when we pray according to his will, he heareth us. And look, this aligns perfectly with that because John says, oh, if you pray for those who have not committed sin unto death, he'll hear and, and give life. Did he not say that? But yet, do not pray for those who have sinned, committed sin unto death. Why? Because they're going to die. That's the whole point here. Okay, so again, when we pray according to his will, he heareth an answer. And I told you this before, and we see it clearly demonstrated within these two verses, verses 16 and 17. That if you want God to answer your prayers as you ask every single time without reservation or without, uh, ex- without exception, then just pray according to His will. Because when you pray according to His will, His will will be done. And so we are to submit ourselves to His will. That's what John is saying here. And we see that unfold in these next two verses. So the next question we must then ask is concerning John's statement of the sin not unto death and sin unto death. So what does John mean by the sin not unto death and sin unto death? Well, the first observation we must consider from this passage is those for whom John says we are to pray or not to pray. Verse 16, if any man see his brother. Now the term brother here would include both one's fellow man and also a fellow believer. It definitely can include both in this respect. That we are to pray, let me just say it like this for you, we are to pray for the unbeliever to come to faith in Christ. We are to pray for those of our loved ones, for those of our friends, for those who are, the gospel is being declared unto them. We, we should pray for their salvation, whether they're, even though they are unbelievers, that's who needs to be born again and saved, are the unbelievers. And so there's, obviously we should do that, but also we are to pray for a brother who's erred in the faith, for one who, who, is, who has fallen into sin or given way to sin or become prey to sin, if we could use that terminology. And so we see here that this, this statement that's being made here is emphasizing this truth overall. That we are not to only pray for ourselves, but we are to pray for others. Our prayer should be for those who are unbelievers, they might, that they might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. However, we are to also pray for our fellow brother in Christ who has erred, ha- has given way, or again fallen prey to sin. So much too often, it seems as though our prayers are self-focused, as I've previously mentioned, rather than our petitions being selfless. While we are to cast our care upon our Lord, our prayers should not be consumed with selfish desires, but more so focused on obviously being submissive unto Christ, even things concerning ourselves, but also in an intercessory prayer for others, that we are praying on the behalf of others. Now, again, our prayer should be that God would humble hearts unto himself, that whether it be someone who does not know the Lord or a brother in Christ, that hearts would still be humbled before God. And by the way, really is that not what our prayer, it, it, the foundation of our prayers are built upon? Remember again, Jesus, when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And what is John saying again? If we pray according to his will, he heareth us. And we know if he heareth us, that he grants the desires or petitions of that which we would ask. And so the whole point being that prayer's purpose is to change us, again, to submit unto the Lord and to a to be aligned with God in His truth rather than trying to align God with us. And we get this backwards all the time as we have seen even in the previous studies. What we often do is we pray asking God, God, this is what I want. Now, if it's according to your will, and but meaning, God, really, we're just asking you to dismiss your will and make your will what we want. 
And, and so God, you know, align with me because this is what I want. And yet, that's not the purpose of prayer at all. The purpose of prayer is that we are now submitting to God, even though we are making our petitions known the best we know how, and we are confessing before the Lord that we don't know even how to pray at times, and God, this is what we believe to be best. We believe this to be according to your will. But if it's not, if we've missed this, if we've misunderstood, or if we've become so subjective that we are missing the objective truth, then Father, your will be done, not ours. Submitting unto him in his purpose and his will. And here's the thing. As God's will unfolds, if we are truly submitted to him, we will still have joy in knowing that God's purpose is being accomplished, his will is being done, regardless of how we may view the outcome from a physical perspective. And so we, it, what's important is not that God align with us because he's not going to do that anyway. What's important is that we align with him. So we are submissive to him. And so that's what we should desire, that we are submitted unto him and others are also. Second, we must consider what John means when he refers to a sin unto death. Verse 16, if, a man, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, we know that God warned Adam and Eve in the garden that if they disobeyed his command, which is to say if they violated his command and instructions, his law, in other words, if they sinned, that it would result in death. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. We also know, and by the way, that death, it, it, there, there's, it's twofold in a sense, because the day you eat of it thou shalt die. Well, the question is, did Adam and Eve physically die the day they ate the fruit? No. But did they die? Yes. Spiritually, they dead. They were dead. But not only spiritually did they die, what else happened? The process of death began physically. And it never would have been otherwise. So they did die. They began to die that day, but they also spiritually died immediately that day. And so there's two, death is twofold in that sense in this regard. We also know that Adam did sin. And the scriptures emphatically teach that all men are under the curse and consequence of Adam's original sin. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered, into the, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So here we're being told that sin entered into the world. Adam was the figure of the one who was to come. Who is that one? It's Christ. The first Adam, the last Adam, remember? But the first Adam sinned and failed. And so in that, death now passed upon us. And then the further statements, Paul goes on to explain, because Romans 5 is about the benefits of justification being explained. That's the, the overall text. And in that passage, in chapter 5, John, or, or Paul goes on to say that... Uh, as death passed to all men, so also life came by one who is Christ. And so the point here he's making is that death came upon all men, for all have sinned. In his epistle of Romans, Paul also explained man's guilt of sin, and the result of sin is death. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. So this is all are guilty, and that's part of the emphasis of Romans 3. Paul is saying Jew and Gentile alike, all are under condemnation, all are under the wrath of God concerning their sin. All are guilty before God, in other words. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
James also speaks to sin and its end as well within his epistle, as we've seen many times throughout our study of Ephesians chapter 6 in the mornings. James 1, 13 through 15, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So we are confident from the consistent teaching of Scripture that ultimately the end of sin is death. However, from the overall teaching of Scripture in relation to John's further comment as stated in verse 17, and there is a sin not unto death, we conclude that John is not speaking of sin in a general sense in this passage. Therefore, we also conclude that although John is not speaking of a specific sin, neither is he speaking of sin in general, he still is speaking of sin unto death and a sin not unto death nonetheless. In other words, there is a sin which one can't commit that does not result in death itself because of that sin. While man remains under the curse of original sin, all the same. And if this were not true, we all would already be dead. Because we have sinned, have we not? So there's obviously sin which is not unto death, meaning not that, general, generally speaking, original sin leads to death, and all of us have sinned, therefore all of us will physically die. Even if you're born again, you will physically Die because you have still sinned, and this is the wages of sin. So we still will reap the consequences of original sin, even though it was not our fault. It was Adam's fault. But we would have done just as Adam did if we would have been there, no doubt. But nonetheless, we reap the consequence of original sin, which is physical death, and those without Christ reap the consequence of original sin, which is spiritual death, separated from God, we all actually have reaped that consequence as well because we all were spiritually dead, and now those who are born again have been quickened. We've been made to life, Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 5. And so we've been brought to life by God. We were spiritually dead. That's a consequence of sin. And we physically die, which is a consequence of sin. And so the wages of sin is death. There's no doubt about that. And that's both spiritual and physical death. But we've been redeemed, we've been born again, and we have eternal life, so we do not spiritually die once we've been born again, but we were already spiritually dead. However, we will physically die even if we are born again because this flesh must be, this corruptible must be put off, that incorruptible might be put on. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians is very clear. And so when John speaks of this sin unto death and sin not unto death, his reference to sin unto death and sin not unto death, could easily be compared to crimes within our judicial system. In other words, one can commit a crime which is an infraction resulting in as little punishment as probation or a ticket or a citation. You ever had a speeding ticket? Well, there are what are known as speed laws or road laws or laws of the road. And when we speed and get caught speeding, there is a likelihood, a high percentage around here, and especially in Georgia, that you will be fined. I don't know of anyone who's ever been cited for speeding who was put to death. I'm thankful for that. The point is that speeding gets you a fine, a citation, whatever. You go commit raw or, or armed robbery, uh, you're probably not going to get a fine. You're probably going to end up in jail. You go murder someone 
And there is a possibility, used to it would have been absolute, today there's a possibility that you're going to end up with the death sentence. But the point being that there are different crimes or infractions of the law, if you will, that result in different punishment or different results or consequence. And so when John speaks of a sin not unto death and a sin unto death, or vice versa, we must recognize what he is talking about. I don't believe John is speaking of a specific sin here, necessarily, any more so than he is speaking of general sin. But he is speaking of there, is, there are sins that can be committed which God will judge quickly. And then there are sins that are committed which God is greatly long-suffering and patient and merciful towards. And have we not all experienced that? And so we must understand what John is saying in relation to this text and all of Scripture within its context. So there are sins committed in such a manner in which God in His mercy and long-suffering will chasten and correct, yet demonstrate great mercy and forgiveness. Likewise, there are sins which men commit in which God quickly executes His judgment upon those who commit such sin. And we don't necessarily have a list of those sins in Scripture. But yet, this is still a truth. So here's the best way for me to explain this to you. It's not for me to even give you examples. I've tried to illustrate that to a degree to give you a better understanding of what John is talking about. But rather, let's go both to the Old Testament and the New Testament and see examples of both within both Testaments. Let's look at the sin unto death in the Old Testament. Do you remember a man named Uzzah? Does anyone remember Uzzah? Do you remember what Uzzah did? What did Uzzah do? What did he do? He reached out to prevent the Ark of the Covenant from falling off the cart, and God struck him dead immediately. Do you remember that? So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the Ark of God. God slew Uzzah immediately, even though he was attempting to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling, we believe, from a cart, obviously, the oxen. And so from falling off the oxen or from being pulled by the oxen, he reaches out to protect the Ark from falling because it's like a child in a car. You know how it is when you have a kid in the front seat with you drive and all of a sudden you stop, what do you do? You reach out to keep the kid back in the seat. That's what Uzzah did. It was instinct. And he obviously cared about the Ark. This was not disrespect from a rebellious view of God or disrespectful view of God, but it was against God's command nonetheless. So Uzzah touches the ark, and God slays him, slays him right there, dead. But then there's sin not unto death. Let's look at David for a moment. And there's many things we could say about David. Of course, he killed Uriah the Hittite and committed adultery with Bathsheba and, of course, numbered the people. I mean, there's so many things that David did, so much sin that David committed as do we all. But yeah, let's look at one that somewhat relates to Uzzah's in a different, it's not the same sin, but to give you an understanding. In 1 Samuel 21, 2 through 6, And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my service to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand. But there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. 
So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. So what did David do? David took something that had been sanctified unto God for the sake of the priest in the tabernacle, in the holy place, and only priests were to eat this bread. That's why God provided it in that manner for the priest. And, and, and yet David comes along and says, hey, I need bread. Well, our men need bread. And so he says, give me what you have. And the priest says, well, we don't have anything of common bread. We have the hallowed bread, the holy bread, the table of showbread. That's what I have. And so he gives it to David, and David says, there were some qualifications here, but then David says, of course, or the comment is made that this is common bread, though it's sanctified. The bread itself is bread, but yet it had been sanctified, set apart for this purpose. And so he was allowed to take that, and God did not slay him. So why would God kill Uzzah and not kill David and his men? Now, Uzzah was attempting to prevent the ark from danger while David and his men were eating for the sake of life, eating to live. And here's the difference, though. The Lord's presence went with the ark. Where did God dwell? In the most holy place. And in the most holy place, what was present? The ark. And where was God's presence? With the ark, was it not? Remember that? And it was holy, and men were not allowed to handle it because it's where God dwelt among the people. The temple bread, taken from the table of showbread, was only to be eaten by the priests. However, it was still intended to be eaten by men. Although it was holy or separated unto the priest, it was still intended for men to take and eat, even if it was only for the priest. The ark, no man was to touch. So you see the difference? Although both Uzzah and David with his men violated God's law, there was a difference in the transgression. The intentions of both men were honorable, I believe, yet the ark should have never been in the position of compromise to begin with. It should have been carried by the staves as God had commanded. How did God prepare the ark to be carried? He, made them, he told them to make rings on the ark. Do you remember this? And staves were to go through. Why did staves go through? So that no man had to touch it. So what happened in Uzzah's case is a compromise had already been made where the ark was being transported in a way that God did not approve and did not, did not allow. And in that process, Uzzah, in innocence, I believe, meaning not meaning to in any way uh, be disrespectful towards the Lord or towards the ark, instinct, it's going to appear to fall, or he's fearful it's going to, so he reaches out to secure it or to stabilize it with the intent to prevent it from harm or damage or falling or what have you. But God says no and kills him on the spot. While David takes holy bread, bread that had been sanctified, set apart under the priest, and he has meant eat it because they're hungry and need bread. Now, that's not a casual thing, and I'm not saying it was a right thing. But God did not slay David for it, nor his men. And yet he slew Uzzah. So what about the New Testament? Are there examples in the New Testament? Absolutely. There's a sin unto death in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all of them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. 
And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Now, you have to understand the context again to go back to chapter 5, Acts 5, 1 through 10. But you have to go back to chapter 4 to understand the significance of what's happening. Remember what happened in chapter 4? The Lord has saved this great multitude of people. They become the church. And you find that there's Barnabas and those others that have brought and all things are common within the church. And they divided to every individual. They distributed to the individuals within the body of Christ as there was need. So they went and sold their houses. They brought all their goods, their money together. And they brought it con, con, uh, to all as a community together of believers. And then with oversight, it was given to those who were in need within that body. And God was honored by this. So what do Ananias and Sapphira do? They go, oh, well, we want to be a part of that. But they really didn't want to be a part of that. What they wanted to do is they wanted to mimic what was being done, and they wanted the recognition, even though they weren't truly interested in ministering to the body in selflessness, they wanted to sell it, keep back part of it, and then claim, oh, we sold it for this much, and here's our, here's our money we sold the property for, when that wasn't the case at all. Now, Peter addresses them and says, look, when you had it, it was yours to do with what you want. First of all, you didn't even have to sell it, and you'd be fine. And if you did sell it, you could keep back part of it, and that's fine. The problem is, you are attempting to mimic the work of the Holy Spirit, and this is not the work of the Holy Spirit. And now you're lying about it unto God himself. And so what does he do? God kills them right there. Drop, doornail dead. Dead. And it's over a lie in reality, isn't it? That's really what it's about. David slew a man. Moses killed a man. Remember that? Paul was guilty of bringing the church to persecution. And Ananias and Sapphira lied. And God slays them on the spot. But there's also sin not unto death. How about the Corinthian church? 1 Corinthians 5. 1 through 10. But a certain... Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I don't think it'll be all 10 verses. Paul writes, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up that have not, and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, for as, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. 
So what we're being told here, of course, is there's a man who's taken his father's wife, which, of course, this is believed, obviously, to be his stepmother. And, of course, he's committed fornication. And this is wickedness. And this is going on in the church. And, again, the real tragedy here is not even the sin itself alone, but it's the fact that the church is glorying in this. Now, glorying in it, not meaning they are rejoicing in it, but rather I believe that they are boastful or they become proud of their tolerance of such a man in their, in their fellowship who's committed such a, a, a sin. And so this has affected the entire church. Do you see this? In a negative light. Paul even says, a little leaven loveth no lump. He's talking about the body of Christ here. He's saying, you allowing the sin in the body and not dealing with this, and then, furthermore, being arrogant and proud in your tolerance of such sin? This affects the entire body of Christ in which you are a part of. And yet, what do we find? The Lord didn't kill this man. In fact, we find... According to 2 Corinthians, we believe he was restored. And that there was repentance. And there was a turning from this wickedness to the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians, as you read through that. So what you find is, and the church definitely turned from that, of their boastful tolerance. And so it's interesting because you may question as to why the Lord would deal as harshly over a lie of Ananias and Sapphira that really, in a sense, watch this, Outwardly, it benefited the church, even though they were lying. The church as a whole were still going to receive monetary, financial uh, benefit. Because even if they didn't give all the money, the church still would benefit. For those who were hurting and in need would still receive from that, from the oversight of those who were in leadership over the church, the apostles and such. But yet when something affected the entirety of the body of Christ, the Lord doesn't slay this man dead, nor the people who boastfully were tolerant in it. But yet he slays Ananias and Sapphira, even though the church would have benefited. Why is that? Well, obviously God is correcting them, and this was not a sin unto death. Right? But yet Ananias and Sapphira sinned a sin unto death. Uzzah sinned a sin unto death. David did not sin a sin unto death. So both in Old Testament and New Testament, you find examples of the sin unto death and sin not unto death in a real practical sense. Now let me ask you something. What good would it have done for David? In fact, the scripture says that David was really displeased concerning Uzzah. David was displeased that God slew Uzzah over this. He really was upset about this. But would it do David any good to pray for Uzzah at this point? Would it do Peter or anyone else any good to pray for Ananias and Sapphira at this point? If there's a sin unto death, don't pray for it. But yet if there's a sin not unto death, pray for those. I don't know how much clearer that could be at this point. So there are those who submit. Now you say, oh, that person's committed a sin unto death. Are they dead? Then guess what? They've not committed a sin unto death if they're not dead. So you know what that, that means? That means we should be praying on their behalf. Now does that make sense? And pray according to God's will in this matter, and that people will humble their hearts before the Lord in such matters, that therefore they are restored to fellowship with the Lord, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice what verse 17 goes on to say, All unrighteousness is sin. Here's general sin, original sin. Anything unrighteous is sin. But, or and, 
there is a sin not unto death. So that means, oh, God judges some unrighteous and not... No, that's not what he's saying. Again, all unrighteousness is ungodly. All unrighteousness is sinful. But yet, that does not mean that God harshly, immediately judges all unrighteousness in the same manner. Now, ultimately, he does because all will die. We know that, but we're talking in the moment. And again, if that were true, then none of us would be here. Right? There is a sin unto death and a sin not unto death. However, all sin ultimately results in death. Original sin results in death. And our prayers for others are to be uh, for those who have erred and yet have not met quick judgment from the Lord for their sins. I'm going to tell you something. I've had people pray for me, and I'm thankful for that. I've prayed for you, and I've prayed for people when they are in sin, and I've had people pray for me when I've been in sin. And you know what? I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that, that God is merciful and gracious as He is in long-suffering and forbearing and patient concerning sin. But we also need to understand, and I think this text helps us to keep a remembrance that though God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering and forgiving, that God does deal with sin even within the believer's life. We will be chastened, we will be corrected, we will be rebuked. And if we refuse to submit to the Lord, then guess what can happen? It's definitely certain that God can take us. Is that not true? Of course He can. But I still rejoice in this truth nonetheless. Faithful is he that calls you, also will do it. And we know, we are confident of this truth, and we know that he's going to conform us to the image of his Son. We know that if we believe not yet, he abideth faithful. We know he cannot deny himself. We know that the moment we step out of this life, no matter what's happening, we are absolutely conformed to the image of Christ and sanctified in eternity. God is faithful. But we need to understand what John is saying. We should be in prayer for those who have erred. We should be in prayer for those who are in sin. We should be praying that God will restore them, bring them back. And that is our responsibility and our privilege to pray for one another in such a manner. And here's what it will do as well, by the way. As we pray for them, it will make us aware and conscious all the more that we not fall prey to the same sins. Because let me remind you of something here. There is not one believer immune from any sin that an other believer can commit. And there's not one believer immune from a sin that an unbeliever can commit. So as we pray for others, is our prayer going to change what happens? That's not the point. God does use our prayer when we are in accordance with His will to fulfill His will. He's allowing us to participate in His will being fulfilled. What a joy is that? But not only so, in praying we are being made aware of our dependency upon Christ and our failures and our sinful fleshly nature that is just as capable of falling prey to any sin. If I'm praying for someone who's in sin, I'm being mindful myself that ah, I am prone to the same sin except for God's grace and His preventive work in my life, I would be guilty of the same exact thing. 
So again, I ask you, in, in that sense, what's really being changed in prayer or by prayer? We are. 